I invite you to take your Bibles, brothers and sisters, as we open the Scriptures in uh, uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy. And we read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. So 1 to 17 uh, in Paul's first letter to Timothy. I read as follows. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what, the, what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for men slayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not a scripture reading. In our text for the sermon is... Uh, this from this same passage, we look at verses 15 and 16. Let me repeat those verses, 15 and 16. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me, first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who were going to believe on him, for everlasting life. In, uh, in response to the proclamation of the gospel, we will uh, 
sing Psalm 63, sing the stanzas 2 and 3, singing about the, uh, the powerful and amazing love of God in Psalm 63, stanza 2 and 3. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, on the one hand, a profession of faith uh, is, is only one step in a lifelong journey of growing in the faith. There's an ongoing process, always being challenged, always maturing in, in your Christian faith. So what's the big deal? On the other hand, profession of faith is a significant milestone in this journey. Because yes, you were born in God's covenant, you've been baptized, God's children have God's promises, and, and, and that's great. That's wonderful. However, those things do not automatically and inevitably result in faith or salvation. That's not a given, right, once you're baptized. In fact, what we will be witnessing this morning is actually a fantastic miracle. It's a miracle of God's saving grace. I mean, sure, as a covenant child of God, you get off to a great start in life. All the promises signified to you and sealed to you. But you are not born with faith. Right? You, you, you were given promises when you were born, but you're not born a believer. In other words... The question is, what are you going to do with these promises that God has given to you? How are you going to respond to the call in the Bible to believe in Jesus Christ when you get older? Now, God uses faithful parents and, 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 and the church and Christian education. Now, in that light, your profession of faith is an event worth celebrating. By God's grace, you have come to know God. By God's grace, you've come to love God, your Creator, your Father in Heaven. You've come to embrace Jesus as your Savior. You have been born again. And in the end, that is not just the work of your parents or the church or the, or the Christian schools. No, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. He gives new life. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, we're going to witness a public profession of faith of two young brothers, of, uh, of Daniel and Matt, and, and that is public profession of faith. Now, why public? Well, they, are, they, they, they love to profess their faith before lots of witnesses. But how public is it actually? Did you invite others than your family and friends in the church? Yeah, I'm not sure what you're doing, whether you're working. I don't know you too, too well, right? So I'm not sure about whether you're working or in college or whatever you do. Um, but, but did you invite uh, co-workers? Did you invite neighbors? And if you're in school, did you invite fellow students who are not Christians? Or is it kind of scary? I mean... If you do that, what if somebody says to you, coming to your profession of faith, what in the world are you talking about? So yes, what is it all about? 
Now, to get a picture of that, we will have a look at the first chapter of Paul's first letter to Timothy, his helper and companion. At the time of this letter, young Timothy is ministering in Ephesus, which is a city in present-day Turkey at the coast. And the message we find here can be summarized in this way, Jesus came for your salvation. And we learn here that this is a reliable truth, but we also learn that it comes with a powerful example. Jesus came for your salvation, that's a reliable truth, and it comes with a powerful example. Congregation, the Apostle Paul could write very critical letters. A number of good examples you can mention. But usually, Paul starts with encouragement, right? Usually in the first chapter of his letters, he thanks God for his grace and the faith and the life of the, ch- of the church he is addressing. And he tells the people how much he loves them and that he has been praying for them. But not always. Not in the letter to the Galatians, for instance, and not here either. In the beginning of his letter to Timothy, he begins right at the bat with an urgent warning, an urgent instruction. He warns against all the wrong stuff that is going around in the congregation. It seems to be pretty bad. Wrong teachings pop up, some promote controversial ideas, others lead offensive lives, people wander away from the gospel. Apparently, the situation in the church of Ephesus needs acute spiritual leadership. Now, that is the congregation where Timothy is ministering. And Paul says, I want you to remain there. Stay put. Don't walk away despite all the trouble. That can be tempting, right? It can be tempting that you have all this trouble to deal with, and you say, forget about it. I'm going to go somewhere else. No, no. You have to protect the congregation, he says to Timothy. They need you. Why is that so urgent? Well, what they are facing is is not a minor issue. As a matter of fact, what's at stake is the heart of the Christian message of grace. The gospel of God's love in Jesus. And so there is a pressing need in that church to make a strong stand for the pure gospel of grace and forgiveness, to confirm the true meaning of the gospel. Now, to encourage Timothy to do this, Paul goes on to share with him the joy and thankfulness for what Jesus has done in his own life. That's a moving testimony, verse 12 to 14, just before our text. Now keep in mind, though, that the apostle does not talk about his personal experience because he thinks that he is so important. Or or that he wants to put himself in the center of this. It looks a bit like it in the second half of this chapter, but that's not the point. It's not so that he likes all the attention. No, no, he wants us to understand what his experience means for other people, for all sinful people in the world, for you, for me, for young people who want to profess their faith. With with, with this personal testimony of Paul, he wants to tell us who God is. And he wants to tell us who Jesus is. He wants to show and tell us what the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. And why it is so important to hang on to that. 
That's why he introduces here a summary of this gospel in the first verse of our text with the words, the saying is reliable or the saying is trustworthy. Now, it's interesting that in the whole New Testament, this expression is only used in the letters to Timothy and Titus, a total of five times. Now, some scholars think that with this expression, the saying is reliable, and I'll call on and then what it says, that, 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 that Paul is quoting a s- statement that was familiar to people, that was, that was circulating in the early church, some, some brief form of confession that people were already familiar with. The problem is that there is really no evidence that such familiar quotes or statements were, were widely used and, and, and around all that time. So the people would recognize that. Almost most, although most Bible translations lean towards that view, what it literally says is the word is reliable, or the word is faithful, or the word is true. And in Paul's writings, the word is usually a short way of saying the word of God. Think of what he says in 2, 2 Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, preach the word. It's the same word used. In other words, Paul wants us to focus on what the core message of God's whole word is. The most fundamental truth. The very heart of the gospel. You know, when people want to profess their faith, uh, they are interviewed by the elders. I'm sure you've been interviewed by the elders here. Uh, and it can be a bit intimidating, right? Because you never know what questions you've got to get. Maybe you blunder in some of these things that you didn't really know. But remember one thing. The elders are after the very center of your faith. The main question is always, can you put into words the very heart of what you believe? So what is here then this saying, or the word, as Paul puts it? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now that's nothing new, is it? Most of you have heard that a million times. At home, in church, school, catechism. And that's true. That's true. The summary of the gospel message is so familiar, at least for most of us here, perhaps not for everyone, but for most of us here. So what we need to do is to blow the dust off to see how amazing, how marvelous, how incredibly beautiful that is. People have lots of different ideas about Jesus. You can come across everywhere think ideas about Jesus, the significance of Jesus, of his teaching, of his person, and the things he did. He was a teacher of love, they say. He came to help the poor. He came to make us better people. Jesus was a rebel. He came to fight racism and social injustice. He came to overthrow the religious and political establishment. 
He came to make the world a better place where everyone is equal. Lots of ideas. What does the Apostle Paul do? He cuts right through all of that. Saving sinners. That's Jesus' job. He says. Snatching people out of the grip of Satan. And leading them to God the Father as his children. That's what he came for. And because these things are so familiar to us, we're going to unpack them this morning very carefully so that together we may see again with awe the marvelous beauty of our Savior Jesus, the splendor of his work. I want you to, I want you to see that. I want you to leave this building and say, yes, this is what it's about. Christ Jesus came. That's what it begins with. What does that mean? Well, to begin with, it's pretty simple and straightforward, right? I don't live here, but I came here. Yesterday I left my house in Waterdown, and now I'm here in Owen Sound. So I came from one place, come to another place. So Jesus left where he came from, and he came here in our world. He entered a place where he did not come from. So where did he come from? In John 17, verse 8, Jesus tells us that he came from his Father in heaven. And in Philippians 2, Paul explains that Jesus was and is, in very nature, God. And he became here to come a man with us. This is mind-boggling. Really. God becomes man. And you know, no one can grasp that. No one can find adequate words to explain it. But that does not mean that it didn't happen. That Christ did not literally come. No, he did. He entered this place, Jesus, where he did not belong. And he came from God's world into our world. Well, you could say our world is also God's world, right? We sing this, 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 this is him. This is my father's world. True. That's correct. But in this contrast, the world in which Jesus came is man's home, our home. And this world has become a dark, an unsafe place, deeply affected by the destructive power of sin. Oh, there is much beauty to enjoy in this creation. We all know that. But it's also a place where we all live with the daily effects of sin, with the brokenness and the decay and the pain in our own lives and all around us. Do you watch the news once in a while? The violence, the hatred, the anger, the self-righteousness, the injustice, the narcissism, the moral confusion, the frustration, the fear, the hopelessness. Jesus came into a world that was and is in self-destructive rebellion against God. And he came. And he didn't come to drop by for a quick visit. He didn't come here and have a look and went back to heaven and said to his father, Lord, Father, this is a bad world, forget about it. No, no. We read in the Bible that angels drop by for a quick visit sometimes. But Jesus came to live with us. To live with sinners. He became one of us. Do you see his love? 
Do you, do, do, look, what, look what he sacrificed. Look what Jesus gave up, what he left. He laid down his glory. He took the form of a servant, a slave. His deep love did not shrink away from any sacrifice that was needed for your salvation. So yes, this is what he came here among us to do what? What's the purpose? To save sinners, says Paul. That's his goal. That's what determines how he came, what he did, and how he did it. What are sinners? The word sinners has become an empty word today a bit. It doesn't say too much anymore, right? I mean, we are all sinners. No one's perfect. But most of us are pretty decent people. Decent people who make mistakes and do some foolish things sometimes. But nevertheless, decent people. Not all of us, but most of us. But the Bible talks differently. In the Bible, the word sinner reflects deeply felt contempt. Sinners are bad, despicable people. In the gospel, tax collectors and sinners are usually lumped together as one detestable category. And we know that Jesus was often hanging out with those folks. And the Jews were thinking that it was an absolute disgrace that Jesus did that. Decent people would never hang out with those folks. Now the point is not to use the word sinner only for the limited group of murderers and and other heavy-duty criminals or something like that. No, we need to learn that for God, this is what we all are by nature. Bad, despicable people. Sinners are not well-meaning people who make mistakes. That's different. I make a mistake when I take the wrong exit from the highway. I can fix that. Take me a bit of a detour, but I can correct myself. But when I sin, I offend the holy God, and I can never fix that. As sinners, we're not just victims, victims of bad influence, of unfortunate circumstances, of poor judgment. No, no, we are rebels against God. And because of this, we all stand guilty before the holy God. Respectable sinners and criminal sinners alike. And when you come here to profess your faith, as these two brothers do this morning... The prerequisite is that you openly confess that about yourself. That's what it starts with. Do you despise and humble yourself before God because of your sins? Is part of the questions. Can we not skip that point? I mean, it's pretty negative, right? Sin. Uh, we don't want to talk about it. We live in a feel-good-about-yourself culture. So calling yourself a sinner is not a popular thing to do. People don't want to hear it. Talking about sin is is yucky. Talking about sin is depressing. So why is it so important to say that about yourself? Well, this is the kind of people Jesus came for. This is the kind of people he came to save. In other words, 
If you look for salvation by Jesus, for God's saving grace in Him, then this is the category you must find yourself in. Wretched sinners who can only pray, Oh Lord, have mercy. Jesus makes very clear that He did not come into the world for the righteous, for the obedient, for the pious. Jesus did not come into the world for those who have it all together in their lives. Healthy people don't need a doctor, said Jesus at some point in time. Sick people do. Your Savior came here actively seeking the disobedient, the wretched lawbreakers, the folks who have messed up their lives. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to, to be near to them. We see that in the New Testament all the time. But it's the same today. What did Je- Why did Jesus want that? Why did Jesus hang out with those people? To condemn them? To threaten them? To make them feel bad? To punish them? No, he looked for them to call them to himself. Call them to himself with the gospel of mercy. The gospel of grace and forgiveness. Come to me, he said. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He wanted to be near to them, to call them to repentance and save them. Jesus came as your Savior. And that raises the question, saved from what? What do you need to be saved from? Well, Do we not just talk about it? Jesus came to save us from our sins. The power of Satan. That's true. There's nothing wrong with that. But let's go a step further. Jesus Christ came to save you from God. Okay, hang on. That sounds weird. But it's right. As sinners, we need to be saved from God's wrath. For Jesus, this meant to identify fully with unwilling and lost sinners. Jesus had to take all your sins and my sins and guilt, take it upon himself. He had to become sin and curse under God's holy wrath for each one of us. And so he went to the cross, where he died the death of a sinner. God's wrath killed him to give life to you who believe in him. Here in the death of Christ I live. Do you, do you see the depth of God's grace for you? Jesus did not come into a world that was worthy of him. The world did not come to him for help. He came into the world. This is fabulous. Jesus Christ came here uninvited, unwanted, He didn't wait till we came knocking on his door. No, no. he came to save people who didn't even want him to come here. And this word is true. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. It still is also today. Paul writes to Timothy in the first century. But this gospel is just as bright and alive today as it was when it was proclaimed for the very first time. That's why this word, worthy to be fully accepted. Not just by Timothy and the parishioners in Ephesus, but also by me and by you today. 
worthy of full acceptance. So embrace Jesus as Savior of sinners. And do so unconditionally with a believing heart. And trust yourself to Him so that your profession of faith today, my brothers, will be more and more a living reality in your everyday life. Then you will experience how true, how reliable this is, this gospel. In your life and in death, it's the mighty rock that will never fail you. No, it's not always easy to hold on to that. We preach this gospel in the midst of a secular ocean of atheism, denial, rejection. And that's the world we live in, so we can easily waver. We can easily become confused. Begin to wonder how true it all is, really. But don't get overwhelmed. Don't get confused by other religious or secular worldviews, philosophies, and what have you. Let the seriousness of your sin drive you out to Him who came to save people like you and me and never take it for granted. Do you doubt sometimes? Do you doubt sometimes? This, this whole thing of salvation for sinners by grace alone and through Jesus, how true is it actually? I mean, the vast majority of people around you will tell you to forget about it. Doesn't make any sense. Here comes the Apostle Paul. Paul, the famous and passionate preacher of salvation for sinners by God's grace in Jesus. To take away any doubts about the absolute reliability of his message, this Paul calls himself twice the foremost or the chief of sinners. In your New King James translation, it doesn't come out twice, because if it's 17 or for 16, let me have a look here, it says in verse 15, to save sinners of whom I am chief. And then in verse 16, the translation says that in me first Jesus might show all long suffering. Actually, it uses the same word. So it should read that in me as the chief sinner, right? That's what it is, twice. The worst sinner ever, says Paul. That's me. Now, what makes him say that? Where does it come from, this kind of self-loathing? Look at verse 13. Look at the picture of who he was before he had seen the grace of God. Before he had come to love Jesus as his Savior. I was a blasphemer, he said. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. An ignorant unbelief. I raged against God. Paul says similar things about himself in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. I'm the least of the apostles, he says there. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. Here is his point. Do you want an example to help you understand who Jesus is? Do you want an example to find out what kind of people Jesus was looking for? You only have to look at the apostle Paul. And then look in the mirror. Look at yourself. And keep it in mind. When Paul says... I am the foremost, I am the chief, the worst of sinners. 
It's not a hypocritical exaggeration. It can easily become that when you and I are going to parrot what Paul is saying here. Then I say, oh, I'm such a terrible, terrible sinner. I am the worst ever. And secretly, I hope that somebody is going to say to me, come on, come on, you're not that bad. You don't have to put yourself so low. That makes you feel a bit better about yourself, right? But Paul doesn't want you to feel better about yourself. He wants you to see the seriousness of what Jesus is saving you from. For him, this was very real. I am the worst. And, and because of that, he also saw the real depth of God's love in Jesus Christ. No, Paul was not a thief. He was not a murderer. He has persecuted the church of God. He assaulted God's children. He tortured them. He flogged them. He blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ. He tried to destroy the church. He tried to extinguish the light of the gospel. Paul was fighting against God himself. And then Jesus came. And he changed him. It was a story of his travel to Damascus. We don't have to go into that, but you may remember that. God's amazing grace conquered him, overpowered him. From a fighter against God, he became a passionate fighter for God. And that continues to fill him with deep awe. As the worst of sinners, I, yes, even I was shown mercy, he says. The grace of our Lord was overflowing for me, says in verse 14. He did not deserve anything like that. But in his amazing grace, God came to him. Jesus stopped him in his tracks on his way to Damascus because he had other plans for Paul. This is so encouraging, really. If that can happen to Paul, if that can happen to John Newton, who wrote to him Amazing Grace, it can happen to anyone. It can happen to me, it can happen to you. God can turn them into followers of Jesus Christ and bring them here to profess their faith. That was obviously important for Paul himself. But in verse 16, he doesn't point at himself to boast in his own humility or remorse. It's not about him. This is about the abundance of God's grace. This is the most powerful illustration of God's love and grace for all who turn to Jesus Christ. That's why Paul gives his personal testimony here. You know, testimonies that we hear from people um, about, about what happened to them, and also Christian testimonies about their faith, those testimonies are often about personal experiences. This is different. Paul doesn't talk about what he was feeling in the past. Paul doesn't talk about how he feels now. He talks about what God has done. And the patience that Jesus Christ has shown to him. The purpose is that you and I and all God's children become even more convicted of God's deep love in the coming of Jesus to save sinners. You know, when you come here to profess your faith, you may feel strong. Convicted. Will you be able to keep it up? What about your sins? What about your failures? What about the days you look at yourself and you think, what a mess, again, right? 
Look at this encouraging example. Look carefully. Do you see how God's incredible patience makes room for repentance? As Peter puts it in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is patient towards you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is awesome when you come to profess your faith. For God's children, there is no end to the patience of God. There is is lots of, of gratitude today, and that's good. But you know, deep down, you can still have this vague uncertainty, right? When it comes to the future. Where are you going to be 10 years from now? Or 20 years from now? I mean, you don't have it all together all the time, do you? I don't. But remember, no sin is ever too big or too much for God to handle. You can never be so far away that Christ cannot reach you anymore. That Christ cannot find you anymore. Look at Paul, the blasphemer, the violent persecutor, the worst of sinners, receives grace. The patience of our God towards every sinner who turns to him and puts his hope in Christ Jesus has no limits and will never expire. Look at this powerful example of the true character of God's mercy. Do you, do you recognize how radical his grace and forgiveness impacts your life? By nature, we all like to fix things on our own. I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to smarten up. I messed up today, but I have to do a better job tomorrow. You hear this, and you wonder, does it indeed work that easy with God? Mercy, grace, forgiveness, just like that. That's the question the Apostle Paul confronts himself with in Romans 6 verse 1. With so much grace, says Paul, with so much grace and forgiveness, can we not just continue to live the life we live? Sin, nothing to worry about. You sin, you ask forgiveness. You sin again, you ask forgiveness. Easy enough. The answer in verse 2 in Romans 6 is a resounding no, certainly not. How can a saved sinner continue to live in sin? That doesn't make any sense. That's true. At the same time, let's not kill the miracle of God's love. So yes, it is that easy. And because it is so easy, it becomes so difficult for us. Difficult to accept. Jesus did come in the world to save lost sinners like you and me who are stuck in helplessness and hopelessness. Just believe it. Believe it with all your heart and live your faith. That's all there's to it. Never take for granted that Jesus had to pay this enormous price of his self-sacrifice because you and I are such despicable sinners. Never take for granted God's enormous patience for you. Yes, as you believe in Him and confess your faith, you will continue to struggle with your sin. We all do. Without His patience, all sinners, all of us, will be hopelessly lost forever. Paul's example showed the amazing greatness of God's grace and patience. At the same time, and I'd like to add that, I have to add that, Christ's patience is in the absolute sense of the world 
not unlimited. Right? As some translations say, there is a limit to God's patience. No, not when you turn to Him, whatever you've done in your life, whatever the garbage is you take along in your life, whenever you turn to Him, there is grace and forgiveness. So in that sense, it's unlimited. But not in the absolute sense of the word. Because when you persistently refuse to believe in Jesus as your Savior, when you persist on walking away from Him, and giving up on Him, you cannot rely on this example of Paul, what happened to Paul, and still expect eternal life and forgiveness. You can never say, look at Paul, look at Paul. God is so incredibly patient, right? I can continue to disobey God, I can ignore His word, I can just do my own thing and get away with it. That would be dangerous. That makes profession of faith a wonderful moment. Not only for these two young men, also for their families, for the whole congregation. So keep saying that. Keep saying, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Have mercy, Lord. I am a terrible sinner. But you will never give up on me. I know that. I know that. People may give up on me. But you will never give up on me. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So continue to turn to Jesus. And trust that Jesus will never run out of patience. Do not give up on the one who will not give up on you. And always remember what you are. A saved sinner. You, just like we all are. Nothing more and nothing less. Amen.